the second ordinary meeting of the Queen's University of Belfast Literary and Scientific Society. For the change in venue, the slightly red start and the lack of seats. Don't get there. You'll be fine. Uh, it's really what you're here for is a bit, right? It's not <coughs> comfort or easy accessibility. <laughs> and that's what we have tonight. An excellent debate is lined up here this evening, where we are here to discuss the motion of this House believes Islam is compatible with Western liberalism. But before that, we have just a few bits of uh, parliamentary business to get through. So. First of all, announcements. Uh, the only one that I can think of right now, yep, is that I've made a slight mistake last week, unfortunately, as I want to do. Uh, Mr. Bradley here had set up quite a wonderful system for the Freshers' Fair stall, a wonderful online system to record uh, people's information and to timestamp it, and just general good stuff uh, for recording your information. Uh, and unfortunately, I, like a fool, uh, forgot about it and instead opted for the pen and paper uh, equivalent. So, whilst we do still have that list, it is uh, rather bare bones. It has only the information that the union uh, requires. Uh, so, there's, a, there's an online Google form which we will be releasing. Uh, it's actually up right now. You can access it by going to signup.letterific.com. Uh, we would ask that everybody who wants to be a member go to that form. It will be the link will be posted on the official page on the literary forum, and yeah, and basically fill it in. Uh, the only things that are still required are the things that the union requires. So that's your name, student number, and uh, an email address. It can be any email address. But we also wouldn't mind gathering some other things, such as what course you're on, what year you're at, and uh, if you've heard about us in various ways. It's just handy because it helps us tailor the debates, the debates to be more interesting to you. Uh, so yes, please do that, uh, even if you've already got a membership card, do it again, because while we could copy all the uh, information on the paper sheets by hand, that takes one person a lot of time, or individually it takes you a few seconds to do the online thing. So we would be very appreciative if you could do that for us. Uh, otherwise, yes, we still have term cards and membership cards, so if you didn't get one last week and you paid, or if you uh, like to pay, and, or you'd like to join, please speak to either myself, Mr. Dunn, or Mr. McDonald at the end, and we shall take your money from you and give you a lovely card in return. This is absolutely not the time, Ms. Bellavis, but is it relevant to what I've just said? Yeah, my question is, if you've already gotten a card, do you need to fill out the Google form? It would, yes, please do. Okay. Um, again, it'll take two minutes. If you only want to fill in the required fields, it'll take 20 seconds. Um, but yes, because we also still haven't given you a... No one who has a membership card has a membership number yet, so this will speed up that process as well. Otherwise, something briefly entered my mind and then quickly exited again. So we shall simply uh, proceed, desperately trying to remember what that was, huh? To the reading of the minutes of the first ordinary meeting. They shall be read by our lovely secretary, Mr. Peter Dunn, and they are off to the bit. This house would not go to Queen's. Please welcome him to the floor. The second ordinary meeting of the 169th session of the Literary and Scientific Society took place on the 28th of September 2017 and was attended by 66 members. President Calvin Black began proceedings by introducing all members of council, including those who had just been elected at the EGM, which took place just the day before. 
private member's business unfortunately began the rather sombre note. The president had been informed that the father of the honorary life member, Andrew Crothers, BBC journalist and author, Seamus Couters, had sadly passed away. The House thus unanimously gave its condolences to Mr Couters and his family. After this, Miss Kira Campbell then produced a fine. A splendid bottle of Tesco's five pounds wine they have. Ms. Campbell also wanted the house to know that she got lost three times finding Tesco's on University Road. I don't know how anybody can get lost three times finding Tesco's on University Road, but she asked me to have some extra accommodation in the minutes. So there's your accommodation here. Private members' business was thus continued with one of the most controversial issues up there, the reunification of Ireland, that of pineapple on pizza. We swiftly moved on, and then a motion was given to Matthew Bradley to receive an applause for handing last, last Wednesday's AEGM. He didn't just get an applause, but I think it's fair to say he got a standing innovation for his EGMing the week before, and that was unanimously passed. And to his motion to applaud Finbar Rogers, who stood for a section in what was a very, very, very close election. President's question was kicked off by Scott Moore, who asked the President that considering there are up to 50 sessions in Belfast a week, probably more, and only one literary debate, shouldn't we have more literary debates? The President responded by referring to his and the rest of the Council's sanity first, by saying that one literary debate a week was probably the best for all of our health. Honorary Life Member Miss Lily Vetter then asked the President what he had for breakfast. Shreddies and cranberry juice which is far too respectable and not nearly interesting enough for the approval of the House. Mr Matthew Sullivan brought up the very pertinent matter of cancer addressing the issue of a time. Nothing that I would, of course, know about. The President assured Mr Sullivan that this important issue was going to be addressed <coughs> swiftly by council. Mr Hugh Dobbin also asked the President if he could give a brief history of that society for new members. And thus Mr Black, in stunning glory, recanted our long esteemed history and the less esteemed mentions were also mentioned. Kieran Gallagher, our guest chair, then introduced the motion for the night. This house would not go to Queen's. Up first for proposition was honorary life member Miss Elivetta. She started her speech by beckoning back to her time as a fresher, seduced by the splendour of the Lanyon building that we're in tonight and riled in with people telling her that Queen's is the Oxbridge of Ireland. And you can all make of that what you will. She argued that Queen's was no longer an educational establishment, but a research establishment. As a student from England, they proceeded to bemoan the folks of Queen's and students for profit, even though they put massive amounts into GB students and she's a benefit of that herself, rather than education. Her impassioned speech called everyone to stand up against Queen's and the House State sitting down. First up for opposition was Mr Peter Moore, who too firstly commented on the prettiness of the Lanyon building, showing it have to join the Lenderific to actually make use out of it, but that's that. And then went on to repeat that the changes that Queen's had made ensured that the university's students were the cream of the crop. Peter also baked up Belfast explaining that employers were appreciative that English, Scottish and Welsh students and internationals could adapt to this, well, interesting and wonderful place. Second up for the proposition was Miss Kira Campbell, 
After a bit of audience interaction, she proclaimed that we should all go to Europe. Almost the house were more concerned about going to the pub, she continued. She went on to argue that we live in a country, you could live in a country where you could marry who you loved, and couldn't get someone's religious background by their name. All sounds very odd, really. But then she moved on to what was a crucial point in the debate, cheap pints. Other countries, she argued, were much more economical for beverage consumption. Continuing the argument for opposition was Mr. Matthew Sullivan, who argued that Northern Ireland isn't really that bad, <coughs> each for their own, and actually praised the cheap pints of the sweet eating. As a computer science student, Matthew is of the official approved useful degree category, so thus argued that everyone has the fantastic facilities that he enjoys. Closing the argument for the proposition was Mr. Ollie Dunley, who had come from a small university called Trinity College Dublin. I haven't heard that either. And continued berating our present emeritus, Benjamin Murphy, and then continued to berate Belfast, and then continued <coughs> to berate Queens and Dorset House Godfrey. He commented that Trinity students knew the answer to common arithmetic, like 26 and 6, and that in true Trinity style, everything was just better over there. Finishing the argument for the opposition was our very own external convener, Mr. Hugh Dobbing. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> His speech started with an emotional plea. His other queens apparently was not from the head, from the heart. It almost felt like he was talking about some old aunt you have to see at Christmas. But he went on to argue that Queens isn't just about the bougie or the pub, but the great education that you receive. But ultimately, Hugh's true agenda was soon exposed. The real root of his argument was that one should really go to Queens, as it's home of this great society, which was received by much applause and acclamation. <laughs> Questions were then heard from Ms. Cara Campbell, Mr. Brian Casey, Mr. Kevin Doherty, Aisha Bielbas, I hope that's how you pronounce it. Oh! And tell me afterwards. And not Doherty. <laughs> there we go. Um, a vote was then taken on speaker ability with 26 votes to the proposition, 33 for the opposition, and one abstention. Thus, the motion was rejected. May I take the minutes of vote? Aye. Uh, it occurs to me that there are, in fact, other announcements, which I'll blitz through really quickly. Next Wednesday, that is, do you know, two, two weeks from yesterday, uh, we are going to Stormont. Uh, wow. Indeed. Uh, so, other than, other than uh, the fact that we'll be debating a motion of... Uh, Mr. Secretary, should we announce the motion yet, or should we withhold it to build suspense? Withhold it. Okay, then. So, uh, as of yet to be the end motion, which is very good and very topical, uh, I am hoping that we'll be able to get some sort of tour of the building and whatnot. But uh, in any event, we need to supply them, as there's a government building and all that, with a full list of everyone who will be attending. Um, we have yet to work out the fine details uh, about transport and things like that. But nevertheless, if you are interested in going, We'll set up a Google form for that as well. Hi. One moment, Miss Campbell. Uh, it's about the storm interest. Yes, yeah, I will. Before I finish talking about that, I'll come to you. So, yes, uh, that is, we're hoping that will either be free or very, very cheap to members of the society, like a 
pound or two hundred no more. And to non-members of the society, you can still come, although we will be charging you more than that. Uh, you could cut us off at the pass by getting a membership before uh, we close sign-ups for that. But uh, in case I didn't say it already, because frankly I have no idea if I did or not, uh, you have to have your name into us before Friday the 13th, so that's next Friday, just so you know. But yes, if you're interested uh, in attending a lovely trip up to Stormont, that is our traditional freshers mixer event up there, or speaking of a bit, uh, have a talk to us, or fill in the form that will be going up soon. Miss Campbell. Um, can you inform the house, Mr. Black, as to how long the event will take? Because I'm afraid I'm a yes. very busy girl myself. Thank you, Miss Campbell, for keeping me ready. Uh, we have to be at Stormont for two in the afternoon, uh, so we probably have to depart here no later than one by whatever methods we're leaving. Uh, and so we'll probably be meeting at the Senate room at about quarter to order, order in that corner. Um, but yes, and as to how long it should take, probably the length of an ordinary meeting uh, if there's no tour. Uh, I don't think there's a tour because I don't think in previous years we've got a tour. But, so yes, hopefully it'll be all done by approximately half four. Uh, but if people would like it to be less than that or longer than that, one, they can leave at any time. Uh, and to we could look into extending it somehow if you just never want to leave Stormont. Uh, but yeah. So other than that, also just worth pointing out that we record the audio of these debates. Um, that is the thing that happens. Uh, speakers generally are aware of this and have kind of officially agreed to be recorded. Speakers from the floor, you can ask to be removed if you want, but again, it goes up online. It's listened to by like a hundred people. Um, so it's it's just like a, an archival thing really for us that we like to do. So I would hope that no one would object, but the option's there. Otherwise, once again, something has gone into my head and gone out again, but we will move on to private members' business for now. So this is a fun part of the evening for any member of the audience. So yes, uh, before we were rudely interrupted, we were just about to move on to private members' business. So at this point of the meeting, anyone from the floor can raise their hand and I will point to you and then you can ask a question to the house, to the speakers, uh, to anyone other than me, if that comes in a moment. So Miss Campbell, I see you have your hand raised. Okay, so last week I might have seemed a little distracted on my phone and while I wasn't Snapchatting, I was receiving a message from someone about a motion they wanted to put to the house. Oh. Yes, and they can't be in person because um, they're on a ship somewhere off the coast of Ghana, I believe. You've killed them, haven't you? That's, that's your excuse. <laughs> yes, I went there and I killed them. You know what happens if if you want something removed, I am completely at liberty to record what you said, but in the voice of the actor Matt Berry. Uh, so if you want that, I can do it. Yes. Anyway, So the motion I have for the house is it's quite long. He's not a debater, so it's not short and snappy. But uh, I don't have any contacts for this whatsoever, so I can't provide any contacts. Hit us with it. Should Greenpeace? be prosecuted as pirates and labelled a criminal organisation for the illegal boarding of a merchant vessel at sea, theft and the obstruction of the right of innocent passage for merchant vessel upon the sea. 
That is a fascinating and verbose question, Mr. Campbell. Does anybody have an opinion? Anyone? Mr. Sullivan? I mean, I, I, I don't really like ruining the environment. I'm pretty green, but Greenpeace attack ships. They're not good people. Yeah, no, they're pirates. Well said, Mr. Sullivan. Sullivan clearly agrees with me. Uh, good sir. Propose shortening uh, the title just here should these boys be allowed to nick ships. Um I oppose. Um so like in the US we have the show like on this channel called Animal Planet where um you see like activists who like stop Japanese ships like trying to kill whales and um even though whales are not as endangered as they were um, because they're not hunted for their blubber anymore, um, you know, they're still pretty fragile. And I do think that a lot of um, the fishing industry has such a negative effect um, because Greenpeace usually, um, usually they do this for like fishing ships. And um, we're, we've really lost a lot of fish and there are a lot of endangered species of fish around the world. And so I do think that it's important activist work. Um, yes, um, they may be pirates and it might not be by law. Um, and they, they are breaking the law, but I do believe that it's the right thing to do because of the shape that the ocean ecosystem is in today. actively involved in piracy, where can I sign up? <laughs> That's the start. Uh, anyone else? Yes, Mr. Hickman. As, as much as I appreciate the, uh, the Honourable Member's opinion when it comes to uh, the sentiment and the good intentions of such an organisation, but frankly, if we are going to, to make this change, this has to be done through legislation. Through, by international accords, by conventions. These are not things that an extrajudicial, wayward group of individuals can attack ships, can cause absolute chaos on the seas. We have to have this regulated in some way. And unfortunately, by doing a, uh, just a rampant free reign of an organisation is, is not the solution. Here, here, here. here, here. provide some insight into Mr. Hickman's response there if I had us properly introduced him as Mr. Hickman, student of law and secretary of the QB Law Society. Mm. Uh, that might have been a study, Yes, Mr. Thornton. Hello. Um, if, if we were to go on this uh, Greenpeace thing, then I'm just going to go down to my local Tesco and nick a can of beer or whatever, because that's basically what they're doing, they just go in and do what they like. So there'll be no such thing as carbon, you shall impugn the good name of the society, Alice. I urge you to not do so. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Dullin seems to be very smart. And we'll take one more point. Oh, I was on a different point. This isn't quite true. And take your seat, Mr. Dullin. If anyone has any one last point on the Greenpeace issue, we shall go with a new fellow down there. Hi, John Murray's. Um, if we do not sort of, you know, tell off great piece for what they're doing, which is essentially piracy and one could consider terrorism. What's to stop other groups that may use the term or Greenpeace to go and attack other ships? Some of these guys stuff. Yeah. 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 Ye
A very fair point. Um, I believe that was technically a motion that was put to the house. So yeah. um, he's going to be very happy. Don't worry. Okay. So then we shall proceed to a vote. Um, can you give us a concise version of it? Oh, you don't need to read out the whole thing. Greenpeace, good. Greenpeace, bad. No, no, I have an idea. Should Greenpeace be prosecuted as pirates? There we go. Uh, so, all those in favour of prosecuting Greenpeace as pirates, please raise your hands and say, Aye! Aye! Aye. 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 And all those against prosecuting Greenpeace as pirates, please raise your hand and say nay! Yay. Yay. One, two, And all those who have no opinion on the motion who would like to abstain, please raise your hands and say meh! Meh! The motion passed by 32 votes. Very good. Uh, so they should be prosecuted according to the infinite wisdom of this house. Does anybody have. Uh, we'll take just one more piece of private member's business. Uh, Mr. Murr. On a serious note, will this house condemn the brutal and ruthless murder of the elf on the shelf meme <laughs> by people who have Only the most serious of matters for me, Mr. Murray. Does anybody have any opinion on this most coming image of our kind? Uh, yes, Mr. Clark. I mean, it, it wasn't really murdered, it was just terrible. Anyone else have an opinion on that? Uh, Mr. Bradley, take officer. To quote the Ninth Doctor, everything has its time and everything dies. Every meme has got a lifespan. And no matter how dreadful that meme is, we all know that it will die one day. I've really kept the spirits up here. Yeah. No, yeah. Death again. There we go. Right, Mr. Bradley, I'm going to pretend that I did not just see you dab. Uh, <laughs> I would be forced to commit if I had seen that, but thankfully I did not. Okay then, in that case, I believe uh, we shall move on to the President's questions. This is a fun part of the evening as well, when you can ask me things, and Miss Campbell, I swear... It's not the question. Oh, good. So, does anybody have any questions for me? It's not the question you think it is. I know, I know, but uh, I'll, I'll save it then, just because I'm thinking Mr. Stalin will ask the question. He always does. Normally, like, normally I could be bothered to make up some big back-out <laughs> spiel, and I'd dress this question up, but I'm tired, so I'm just going to ask, what do you have for breakfast? <laughs> I guess <laughs> it's always <laughs> I, I appreciate your honesty. Uh, although I do feel as though you've subverted it somewhat by making your non-fake-out the fake-out. I see your game. Uh, I had for breakfast this morning the same that I had last week a uh, glass of cranberry juice. Well, shreddies with soy milk. Terribly boring, I'm afraid. Miss Campbell, hopefully a more interesting question, more this original is, one. This is what I wanted to ask last week okay. when Ben was in the room. So it's a question I asked him during his time as president, okay. and I feel it's very compelling. Especially using Ben is sick with the flu, so I wonder what this will say about you next year. But Mr. President. Do you consider your eating habits to be healthy? 
Oh, good heavens, no. Um, that said, I wouldn't consider them to be actively unhealthy. I don't eat a lot of fast food. I don't really eat any fast food. I just don't really eat, uh, which is a bit of a problem, admittedly. But I mean, it, it could be worse. Um, so, Why are you personal question, Miss Campbell, that appears to have taken more people by offence than I, I don't really care, but I suppose it's not what the kind of thing you should ask, so yeah. don't, don't do that, Miss Campbell. Oh, there's lots of her here now, Miss Ferrari. Okay, uh, Mr. President, as an international student, can you explain me what is all this concern about your eating habits? <laughs> Breakfast, dinner, explain this to me because I don't get it. This is a bad joke. Yes. Thanks. I would also, if I, I could barely fathom the answer myself, something to do with, you know, uh, in jokes and things that won't die. So anyone can vote in this one. This is the vote on prior opinions. <coughs> so this is quite simple. Simple. All you do is I, may, or abstain uh, on the motion. So if a binding vote were held right now on the motion of this house uh, believes Islam is compatible with Western liberalism, and you were to vote in support of that motion, do you raise your hand and say I. Aye. Aye. Keep them up so we can count. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, I've got 32. I've got 31, so okay. All those who would vote against the motion, please raise your hand and say nay. Aye. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 6, 7, and seven. Uh, was your hand up there, Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> and all those who have no opinion, who do not know, who wish to abstain, who wish to express no opinion whatsoever, please raise your hand and say, meh. 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 Keep it up. Okay, so um, I would now, any chance you have for me, Mr. Secretary, what I asked you to prepare earlier? No. No? Okay, that's fine. Well, in that case, um, it is my great pleasure to welcome to the floor now our guest speaker for this evening. Our uh, guest speaker is very well versed in this area, and in case you can't tell, I'm vamping because I forgot my cheat sheet. So hopefully, and I apologise, good sir, he will give himself a proper introduction to you all. So all that remains for me to say is I urge you to welcome to the floor our guest chair, Dr. Livingston Thompson. my PhD, one of the things that I was concerned to understand was whether there can be a conversation between Islam and Christianity. And uh, uh, my first publication actually had to do with this very topic, the a conversation with Islam and what formula for conversation that might have. So I'm particularly interested in this field, and I'm also very happy and privileged to be able to be here with you this evening to <coughs> consider this topic. <coughs> Debates in general are fraught with, what may say, difficulties, due in large measure to the fact that often, when terms are used, 
the contending parties are, do not understand them in the same way. And yet some might say that that is the point of debate because people will always understand things. <coughs> However, there is no charm in absurdity and it will be a complete waste of time to find at the end of the debate that we are contending over terminologies or simply spitting here. It behoves the parties in tonight's debate then to, to satisfy us that this is not simply a terminology fashion show. And yet, given the mood, the issue of terminology is not insignificant. It's important that those who propose the mood and those who oppose do not fall into the classic error of assuming that Islam refers to a homogenous religious community. There are different kinds of thinking within Islamic communities worldwide. And the perception that of what is essential in Islam varies from place to place, or even from epoch to epoch. The same is true of liberalism. Liberalism in the so-called West. So thinkers like Locke and Voltaire and Rousseau, Hume and Adam Smith, to name a few of who have made contribution to what may be regarded as the liberal project, did not all say the same thing. For this reason, we can speak of classical liberalism, we can speak of neoliberalism, for example. And if we think about continental Europe, when compared to, say, with, say, the United States of America, we find that there are different emphases. In brief, then, without being pedantic, the contributors must ensure that we are not lost about which Islam are we talking about and which liberalism are we really referring to. With that, then, I will invite then the speakers to get their, 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 post, their positions ready. I do not have the names here, so if I might, if I might be helped, Mr. President. Yes, certainly. Well, I do not need to recite for you the, the, the usual rules relating to our debate, but the ones that I, I believe especially is uh, of, of, of virtue is respecting the first and the last minute of the, the, uh, the speaker's um, um, contribution so that and give them the discretion within those, those five minutes whether or not they will take the, your question. So the first then to speak for the proposition, this house believes Islam is compatible with Western liberalism, Ms. Bellis. Um. So I will start off with a sort of funny note. Um, Calvin, I feel bad that you've only had shreddies today, and I just I wish you could experience breakfast in the U.S. Um, so I think it's really important for me to introduce myself before I begin with this debate. Um, my full name is Aisha Allison Belvest. Um, I am I consider myself to be biracial. I'm half white, half North African. Um, I'm Muslim. I'm a study abroad student from the United States. And I consider myself to be very, very Western and very, very Muslim. So here you go. So the two terms, um, I wasn't planning on saying this, but um, because the intro speaker brought it up, so the two most terms that are deeply misunderstood um, are jihad and sharia. 
Um, Shariat just means um, Islamic law. Um, it just it's just like it's very basic. It's like theological law. It's like it's the reason why like I don't eat pork or drink alcohol. It's not like any like oppressive down down. And um, jihad is the same word as crusade. It means the exact same thing. It's the literal translation. Um, and it means internal struggle, and it can mean internal struggle like um, quitting smoking or not swearing or something like that. So I just want to begin saying that I was very frustrated with this idea that um, Islam and the West are like two totally different things because like I'm those things combined. So I'm really, because this idea that, you know, Islam is compatible with Western liberalism already sets up the paradigm of the East and West. So this whole thing is about like destroying that. So things that we believe to be the core aspects of Western liberalism, like feminism and social freedoms are actually not Western and in fact existed long before Western feminism and social freedoms existed in the US. Um, in the Quran, it says that men and women are equal. And in the Muslim world, um, in the ancient Muslim world, which spanned from Spain to China, women had property rights, rights to marry who they chose, and rights over their body long before Western women did. Um, in some places in the West, women still don't have these rights, and, um, and they did long before. Um, in Islam, um, women have the right to choose um, abortion because the fetus is not considered a person in Islam until having a soul, which is 120 days, and it mandates that a woman must get an abortion if her life is at risk, which is better than Ireland these days, meaning that Islam sees, sees the woman as more valuable than the fetus that she's holding. Um, the Quran says religion is not compulsory, which is a deep belief of secularism and social freedoms. Many of the tenets that we consider to be Western were actually part of Islam long before these values existed in the West. I'm a Muslim and I'm also a deep believer of liberalism, social freedoms, and socialism. I, you can give me any issue, any issue, and I can tell you that it is compatible. You'll probably be a little shocked with this one, but yes, LGBTQ rights are a part of Islam. The Quran mandates no punishment on same-sex relationships, unlike Christianity. And interpretations of, of bans of homosexuality can be understood to not be about um, sodomy, but actually about rape, uh, sexual assault. Um, even the, yes? So are you saying when I've heard uh, Allah came to Muhammad that he was talking about LGBT rights because you said that it was in there, but it wasn't even a thing until the last 50 years? Um, so in the Quran, um, there is no punishment on same-sex relationships. Um, and in um, the communities, um, when Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, um, was first preaching um, to people asking them to become Muslim, um, one of the groups that he actually preached was um, were people from the LGBTQ community um, to join. So, um, yeah. And um, societies um, were far more open um, than a lot of societies in the West at that time. Um, if you look at Andalusia, uh, can I finish first? Um, in Andalusia, um, in ancient Spain, 
um, which spanned about 900 years. Um, Muslims, Jews, and Christians lived in relatively peace and harmony. And intellectualism, scientific advancements um, flourish at this time. Um, Islam um, even believes in rights for sex workers. Um, it actually says that um, prostitutes should not be harmed or punished, and um, that if someone does not want to be a prostitute, that they should, that there should be resources in the society to help them get out of that. Um, I see no contradictions between my liberal and socialist beliefs and my religion. In fact, I believe that my religion supports my activist work and my activist work supports my religion. Point. Yes. Um, I'm really interested in hearing about your experiences and I think I'm getting into that evidence is really good. But would you say you're representative of a majority of the people who are like you? Um, so the thing is, is that um, Islam used to be a very liberal, um, you know, um, if you look at the Muslim world spanning from China to Spain um, in the ancient Muslim world, it was a very open and tolerant and um, accepting world of different religions. Um, even the Ottoman Empire, there was um, LGBTQ literature and poetry, um, and people who wrote that were not shunned. Um, what happened was colonialism destroyed a lot of openness and acceptance, and um, and so a lot of a lot of uh, the advancements that happened. Um, in the Muslim world have unfortunately um, been destroyed. And so it's up to people like me who, um, I'm actually very privileged when you look at many Muslims around the world because I have the opportunity and education. And so the thing is that you cannot compare me to one billion people because I'm much more privileged than the 1.5 billion people who are Muslim. But it, it does, I do feel a big weight on my shoulders to, um, to educate um, people who are Muslim, people who aren't Muslim, um, to accept these values. Um, so uh, in the U.S., I've worked and campaigned with mosques, political campaigns, social justice campaigns. I've done um, work on the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community. Am I done? Is that seven minutes? No. <laughs> ah. I, can I, point of order, turn myself apart. Roughly how much time would you think you have left? Take a minute. A minute. Would the house like to offer her an extra minute? Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Can I get a seconder? Second. 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 I grew up as a Muslim in the most liberal cities in the country, Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is where Harvard and MIT um, reside. Massachusetts was the first state to pass same-sex marriage. Um, it's very liberal. And we were the first city, one of the first cities to have Eid as a city holiday and have a city councilor as a Muslim. And in my opinion, Islam um, in America flourishes in the most liberal places. Finally, Western liberalism would not exist without many of the advancements that took place in the Muslim world, um, because the foundation of Western liberalism is the, is the Renaissance. Um, that's what a lot of people say, it's the Renaissance. And the Renaissance would not have happened because the Greeks, because um, the Greeks like Artemis and um, their work would have been lost, except Muslims translate it into Arabic, which then 
was translated into Italian, French, and all these other different languages. And also the first university in the world was created by Moroccan princess in Morocco. So Queens would not exist without the University of Morocco. I rest my case. at least for her speech. Give her another applause. And now it's Edmund Dorothy for the opposition. I would like to begin my speech by giving you a statistic I found from the Huffington Post, published on the 30th of August 2017. This, was this, this is taken from a survey by Hope Not Hate, a British charity that specialises in um, promoting peace within the UK. They found that in a survey, over 50% of the British people that took part in it believe that Islam poses a threat to the West. What this shows is the idea that Islam is not, is not compatible with Western liberalism is not something only a small minority believe in, it's actually something that is spreading across the country and across many different people. As such, I'd like to start off by showing you some of the laws that exist in majority Muslim countries, including Saudi Arabia, the birthplace of Muslim, in Islam, excuse me. So, in Saudi Arabia... Point. Yes. <laughs> um, would you be knowing when Islam was born, 610 years. Would you be knowing when Saudi Arabia was born? Okay, in what is now referred to as in, in now referred to you're, you're more than a millennia of just pointing that out. <laughs> anyway, so on the 3rd of October 2017, an article was published in The Independent which stated that there have already been 100 executions in the country of Saudi Arabia. Alongside this, in Tunisia, which, is, which has Islam as its state religion, the inheritance law states that a daughter is only entitled to half of what the son would receive upon the death of a father. On that point, sir? Yes. <laughs> would you be knowing the fact that Islam was in fact one of the, the first religion to actually give a woman any rights to inheritance? Yes, but... How does that change what is currently going on in modern times in majority Muslim countries where the inheritance law is far more unequal than it is in the West? On that point. No, no bargaining, sorry. No, no bargaining. You need to get another two to a couple of seconds to keep going. Alongside that, I would also like to point out that the difficulty between Western liberalism and Islam is actually already occurred. Um, a week ago, the London School of Economics was actually, um, was actually ruled in the court case to have done something unlawful. What? Well, it was the fact that the Islamic Society Gala Dinner had, set, had, the, gender, had the, the, the different genders segregated by a curtain, which is unlawful because and it goes against most agenda rules that we've established in this country over the last uh, hundred or so years. Um, that's not actually like from the religion, that's a cultural thing that has been influenced by like... Um, it is the society of the religion of Islam 
within this universe. Hold back and forth. I'm sorry. <laughs> Alongside this, I would also like to speak about Muslim leaders and Muslims' opinions on um, on this idea of compatibility or incompatibility. Influential Indian, Indonesian Muslim leader Yahya Khalil Sakuf. Yes. Um, I'm loving your speech so far, but it feels like you're cherry picking examples. Like you're just picking out examples that you want to prove your idea, but like it's it's just not working. I'd like to think I was making points, but. <laughs> <laughs> I should more clearly state that my current point is the idea that even Muslims themselves have actually denounced the idea of Islam working within a Western liberal society. Um, I'm not going to repeat his name because it's a very difficult one. But I should, I'll, say, influ- I'll say it again. Influential Indian- Indonesian Muslim leader, Yahya Khalil Sakuf, stated that there is a clear relationship between terrorism and orthodox Islam which I, I have found is actually um, co-op, not co-opted, On that point? collaborated, should say, yes? How can you relate that the formal Islam uh, has something to be with ISIS, that I think that's a terrorist group that you're talking about? Because we, um, we, uh, we don't see terrorism as a good thing in the West, personally. <laughs> <laughs> Alongside this, I found that actually an English person has stated it. Maji Nawaz, who is actually a former Islamist and also a former parliamentary candidate for the Liberal Democrats in the 2015 general election, said that there is a connection between Islam and terrorism. This was in relation to his show on LBC, which don't listen to that station, but. On that point? Yes. uh, With the same argument that you're talking about, I could be saying right now that I uh, mean that the Irish people have something to do with the RRA <gasps> because it was the same following argument that you're tell, telling us about that Islam is directly be, be, beyond or behind uh, the the ISIS. We, we could say the same thing, didn't we? Okay. I should make a statement on that, actually. In in any um, religion, political party, anything like that, you will always have moderates. However, you will also then always have extremists. How do you think Jeremy Corbyn started as an MP? In the same case, Islam has extremists. This is not something that we can merely just ignore and deny. As such, I would like to speak to you about the Islamic calendar. On that point, sir? No. Check the time. So, last year was 2016. When the Islamic calendar, it was 1437. And I would like to bring to... I'd like to show you an example from what happened in 1437 in the Gregorian calendar. In 1437 AD, James I of Scotland... I really don't want to make a hand of this, yeah. but... Could you finish your speech in one more minute? Yes. Would the house like to give another minute? Yeah. Uh, yeah. One more minute? He did take a lot of questions, so it's Just quickly, all those in favor say aye. 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 Okay, go ahead. You have one more minute. 
What that shows is that our culture has changed. Has Islam's yet? To finish, I would like to give you a quote of my own. In the liberal society, if someone identified themselves as a woman, liberals wouldn't stop that person's identification, would they? So why is it that whenever there's a terrorist who happens to be Islamic, they ignore the fact that he is Muslim? Now that was Mr. Doherty's main speech, so I think he deserves it. noted that uh, Ms. Willoughby's also made her main speech. So in retrospect, uh, uh, an applause for her because of her. <laughs> now, now, Mr. Fionbar Rogers, the second speaker for the proposition. Ladies and gentlemen, and everything in between. Firstly, <laughs> Mr. Doherty, just because an idea is widespread does not make it true. 50% of the British people also chose to commit economic suicide last summer. I don't believe that that referendum result was in keeping with traditional liberal values. And, now, and that moves me nicely to this point. Uh, oh, she knows how I'm not coming No, sorry. Get ahead of myself. Um, well, we're talking about Islam. There's, for the last seven months, we seem to be thinking about a, a, some sort of monolithic thing, which it very much isn't. Speaking as someone who's raised Catholic, I have a lot more in common with liberal Muslims than I do with, say, for instance, the Free Presbyterian Church, even the traditionalist wing of the Catholic Church. Um, and uh, the Abraham religions are a vast spectrum, which have, over the last millennia, at various points, in various ways, stolen and borrowed and borrowed and stolen from each other. Um, and then, maybe it's pointing to this point, but I'm going to change my mind. Um, how, who are we to judge uh, who adheres to the values of Western liberals when, Western liberalism, when we have never done that ourselves to any meaningful degree? We, we have on paper, but we've been more than willing over the last few centuries to cast those uh, principles aside when practicality got in the way. Um, the earliest example would be the early example that of ancient Greek, Greece and the uh, the very findings of democracy, um, which where democracy was restricted to only those people who would be eligible for membership of the Culture Club in 1927. Uh, and ancient Athenians also kept slaves. Yes, they recognized this was wrong, but at the same time, who's going to pick up our stuff? Um, so it's an example of practicality getting in the way. Um, and between then and now, we have, in the last century, seen power struggles for states which have uh, it, it, uh, it, democracy and liberalism has never been an easy ride. It has always been thoroughly resisted at every single turn. The best example would be the United States, which, as, uh, as Christianity has always had the tradition of burning heretics, the United States has kept this alive by US Army chaplains blessing US bombs and soldiers as they are sent out to other countries. Here, here. The US like to think of themselves as the greatest democracy in the world. But uh, in any real terms, they've only really been a democracy for about 50 years. The Declaration of Independence, yes, declared that all men are created equal, and funny enough, it was the first time anyone had ever thought to write that down. But the Constitution then went about creating a long list of them of what a man actually was. 
women than one you're looking for by, until about 1920. Um, and then moving closer to home, we have Europe, specifically starting in Britain, which uh, has measured itself as being the mother of all parliaments and having a kind of civilised approach to empire. Point. No, go away. Um, <laughs> however, again, they've always been willing to offer what is practical. We saw that in 1971 with Operation Demetrius. We, um, we again are seeing that now with calls for the introduction of internments. Uh, Point. In the face of Muslim uh, extremism. Go ahead. Uh, are all of these. Oh, sorry. Are all of these going to be historical relativism points, or are we ever going to actually get to the ideology at hand? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a historian, this is what I do. Um, and uh, when we're thinking about Europe, uh, what do you think uh, I did? both uh, adhere to the values of liberalism and also was more stable. Iran under the Shah, or the Weimar Republic in the Second Spanish Republic, considering how the free of those end. Um, so on that point, what, yes. what do you want to mean about that? <coughs> I mean, what's, what's engagement in there? Well, it's about, it's about 10 years of liberalism and democracy and then completely fell apart. We're, we're about the back of fascism. Point. No, sorry, no, sorry. Um, uh, I thought I had one. <laughs> That's a fine, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> I, I just finished. Okay, well, there you go. Fine, Mr. Rogers, that wasn't your main speech, was it? <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, very well. Give me my hand, anyway. I regret this is not a representation of democracy, so I can't hand over some of your time to somebody else. Um, so, uh, uh, Mr. Khan O'Neill for the opposition, seven minutes. Same uh, guest, uh, ladies, gentlemen, comrades. My time here, <laughs> my time here will spent largely over two areas that I believe this debate fits into, which are that of the direct teaching of Islam and its effective indirect outcomes. Never at any stage should we absolve one of these two from the responsibility that it's had in today's society. They must both be examined and unified to give the necessary analysis that this debate deserves. I will also focus on the actual motion, the term compatible and how that means through the dictionary, able to exist or occur together without problems or conflict. The beautiful thing about this motion is how specific it is, in that it looks at Western liberalism, meaning a school of philosophical thought that began during the Enlightenment and that has driven political ideology west of Germany since its inception. It's important to always keep in mind as this argument progresses, the pillars not of Islam, but of uh, liberalism in the West. The idea of democracy, the idea of freedom of press and of thought and of speech. The idea of religious freedom and religious tolerance to all religions. The idea of secular, meaning religion out of politics. The idea of gender equality and of the rule of law as decided by our elected officials. The reason it is the most dangerous of all the major religions is that it makes the assertion that it is the last and final truth to be spoken by God. Um, this immediately is a temptation to violence and intolerance, the fact that it is the last. And if you note, it's a temptation that they are quite willing to indulge in. On that point, what? 
Do you not think that's a bit of a leap? Is it? In logic, yeah. <laughs> well, look, look, look what's happening in society, look what's happening. Yeah, yeah, but to say... Okay, we're going to advance, look what's happening, and it's to say that the indulgement is preferred. Um, I am quite tired of the privileged positions uh, and the looking back on the good old days of Islam. Look at what the religion is now and in its current form. <coughs> For example, if I was talking in the 1930s, I would definitely say that the Catholic Church was the most dangerous religion in the world, and it's open alliance with fascism and Nazism, and how they will never be able to recover from that in that time. The ultimate aim of Islam, no, no, no. as seen in the scriptures, no, no, no. is to end up with Sharia, that, that is the religious law rather than our civil law. And in ways I can nearly just drop the mic and be done with this speech. Because, no, thank you. because Sharia and civil and our civil laws are about as compatible as oil and water. And this is the crux um, that Islam should be rejected on and should be ridiculed and ousted from our society if we wish to remain a liberal, free country. On that point. No, thank you. The first speaker said that Sharia wasn't oppressive, but what, what if it was implemented here? So for the people who, who don't indulge in the Islamic faith, I would, I would be prosecuted on religious law. On that, on that point, <laughs> um, if you are not Muslim, you are not objected to Sharia law. That's like a really big point. And the thing is, is that a lot of these so-called oppressive governments were actually put in by the US. And they were not chosen by the people. Here, here. I'm never going to uh, defend the US or the British Empire for that regard, so yeah. I, um, <laughs> I won't wait. Uh, with regard to Islam, I don't really waste time in terms of getting into the ideology um, that an angel came to an illiterate merchant warlord in Arabia. And speaking Arabic to him, the illiterate man somehow wrote all this down into scripture for everyone to read. Uh, I'm not going to waste my time with it. And I don't think that I'm being harsh on Islam, I'll be harsh on all religions. And I think they're all equally nonsensical and ludicrous and we should reject them. However, Islam no, thank you. However, Islam is by far the greatest threat facing our way of life in the West and we should fight against it while we still can. The religion is unashamedly intolerant to promiscuity, to alcohol, homosexuality, adultery, to other religions. Things that are tolerated in our society. And I will bring back the no thank you. I'll bring back the idea of compatibility. Is this compatible in the West? Are these our values? Um, let's have a look at how Islam in the world has spread out so far and the states that have adopted it, um, for good or bad, the human rights abuses, gay people are stoned, women are raped without repercussion for certain garments that they did or did not wear. Women can't can't vote, they can't drive, Wahhabism and jihad is peddled by rich oil oligarchs in the Gulf and it is exported then to our societies. That is what's happening now in its current form. And let's not forget the most recent religious genocide in the Middle East that saw a sunny militant group attempt to create a caliphate while it's murdering, maiming and raping their way through the origins of civilization. If we wish for these things, well, we should look to this religion to uh, instill it in our own democracy. Uh, in what way are these real world outcomes compatible with the ideas of all Western liberalism? On that point. Uh, yes, I don't think. <laughs> I get the sense that what you're saying is that brutal, heavily extremist theocracies are compatible with Western liberalism, not necessarily Islam. I mean, you could say all these things about, you know, the Pope ruled all of Europe. I, I and also the Pope was a giant fascist guy. I, I, I absolutely agree, and I, I'll, I'll refer back to the idea of Van Hammond in one of the Oxford debates. He's a conservative MP, and I'm just answering someone else. 
and he basically went out with socialism against uh, capitalism. That he was basically saying, look at the necessary outcomes. And so look at what Islam has currently done to the world. So in, in its absolute... And it's, I'm still answering. Um, so in that case, uh, I, I think you also have to look at the necessary outcomes of what has happened. Um, also, with regard to like, the Ottomans and stuff, these societies flourished because they allowed freedom of religion. They actually embraced liberalism in its, in its pure sense. They abandoned ideas of a theocracy at times during the empire, and that's how they flourished. And that is essentially what this is. It's a battle of ideologies. It's democracy against theocracy. And you can choose which one you wish. <coughs> All that point. Oh, that's that's like, uh, I'm in my minute on it. Sorry. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, to conclude. My chair's not The apologists for this religion will be the ones who open the door to the gates of this barbarous ideology to take over. The people of tolerance, of multiculturalism and kindness in their hearts will effectively be the people who will tie the noose from which we will all hang. It is here that our society shall fall if we appease these irrational and dangerous thoughts. A hero of mine, uh, Christopher Hitchens, predicted the rise of Islam fundamentalism in the West even before the 9 11 attacks uh, were here, because in his head it was clear the danger that opposed. Indeed, my being here making this speech would have me in front of a Sharia court if I, if I lived in Saudi Arabia in 2017. Uh, so we must look at the motion and say, is it compatible? Does it exist in our liberal societies without problems or without conflict? I hope uh, over the last few minutes I've shown you that I cannot, and therefore I beseech you to reject the motion. Thank you. point out a couple of things. First of all, when someone has been asked the point of operation, they can decline it. They don't have to take it. And they can decline a hundred or they can decline one, whatever. If they do take it, when they're answering that question, you can't ask another one during their answer. And once they start back on their speech, let them get through at least two sentences before asking another question. They've had a lot of time and effort into writing their speeches for tonight, so it's a little disrespecting. Also, <coughs> Anytime I do something stupid, which is going to be frequently throughout this year, please shut shame resign at me. It's the only way to stop me. Yes. Anyway, uh, apologies for that. So, thank you, Mr. President. You, 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 yes, you have the right to be. These chairs are awful. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to more the quotes as well. Yeah. You know, where's the quote rack? <laughs> so, well, thank you, Mr. President. Now, um, we want. So, so, can we have another hand for Mr. Mr. O'Neill? Proposition. Yourself. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not used to the start of debating, so I'm just going to keep it simple. Listen with the ears of tolerance. See through the eyes of compassion. Speak in the language of love. This little quote by Jalaluddin Muhammad Rumi, the scholar of Islam, by the way, was written way back in the 13th century, and I think it proves just how liberal, and that liberal ideas, liberal concepts, were not only present, but prevalent in medieval Islamic societies. But 
to give you a little bit of perspective, at a time when a man in Europe was sentenced to long years in prison for, and I quote, commonly leaving the city with arms and a greyhound at the time of vespers and returning in the morning, the Islamic world was gathering scholars from diverse cultural backgrounds to meet and translate all of the world's ancient knowledge and classical literature into one common language for the common people of the time. There's the compatibility. Before I move on, um, I'd like to point out that Mr. O'Neill defined the word compatibility, but very conveniently left out the meaning of liberalism, which in fact means that we need to exist together in spite of the conflict. So let's move on to addressing the elephant in the room, violence in Islam, radical Islamic terrorism. The opposition walks in here with cherry-picked usual polemics, incidents out, out of context, trying to make us believe that Islam is in fact incompatible with the ideologies of the West, but what they have failed to prove tonight is that there is something fundamentally flawed with the very tenets of Islam that prevents it from evolving with the culture that it embraces or with the times in which, is, in which it is practiced. They fail to prove it. Islam, however, is compatible with violence, but that doesn't mean it is identical to violence. And I say that because Islam does permit the use of violence in certain limited contexts, but out of all the references to violence in the Quran, the ones that do promote war are followed by excitations saying, and I quote, taking the peaceful option is always better and in accordance with the will of God. And even in the Islamic injunctions pertaining to war, all of them fall well within the concept, the Western concept, of the just war theory. But to be fair to the opposition, because I realize that when one is opposing a motion as controversial and as volatile as this one, any negative statement can be viewed as intolerant or right-wing. But the fact is that they're still here, standing up here and saying what they have to say, oblivious to the fact that if Islam was in fact incompatible with Western concepts, a group of extremists would be barging into this room, screaming the name of Allah. But we're all still here. Don't write that out, out. All the points. We're all still here, sitting, debating, urging the house to view Islam the way a majority, an overwhelming majority of Muslims in this world do, as a religion of justice, liberty, and love. On that point. A religion just like yours, as compatible with the modern world as yours. On that point. You've already experienced and heard this lovely lady here talking about women in Islam, so I'm not going to dwell too much on it, but I would like to mention that marriage in Islam is in fact by way of legal contract, a contract that is upheld in the court of law instead of a religious one. There's the compatibility with modern ideas. But another tenet of Islam that people consider to be in stark contrast with Western ideologies is freedom of speech, expression, conscience, well, believe it or not, suppression, repression are actually forbidden in the Quran. 
So I implore you not to judge a 1,500-year-old text. A text that has stood at the forefront of the world's second largest religion, based on articles from newspapers that were printed yesterday. On that point. Within the Quran, in fact, there is no text that forbids freedom of expression or suppresses it by any means. On the contrary, the Quran encourages people to discuss matters openly, protest, accept or reject ideas, and bring about all the evidences that might be available to contest Islamic teachings. The Quran puts no restrictions on the freedom of expression to the extent that even the devil is allowed to speak openly. The, um, I'd be curious to hear your views. Oh, okay, I'd be curious to hear your views on um, blasphemy laws. If you're trying to peddle the idea of freedom of expression under Islam, I get to it. Please sit down. I already addressed that in my speech as well. It's also noteworthy to that Islam does not speak of apostasy laws either, even though it does refer to apostasy. But at none of these places does it prescribe any human punishment for abandoning faith. My point, ladies and gentlemen, is that the central message of Islam is justice, peace. And it instills in the individuals the essential qualities for coexistence, peaceful coexistence. The opposition, the fanatics, the so-called radicals, anti-social elements can believe in Islam's incompatibility all they like. But it is up to all of you to not confuse the teachings of a religion with the history of the region in which it is practiced. So take a second and think about the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda. Think about the KKK in the USA or the massacre of Muslims by the hands of the Buddhists in Myanmar or, in fact, right-wing political parties in India or the Naxalites in India or even the Las Vegas shootings. Was it their religion or are these people themselves incompatible with modern liberal ideologies. All around the world and in all religions, people... Oh, wait. Do you want another minute? Is that what you're asking for? A couple seconds? A minute. Seconds, I'll let you go, but... A minute. Minute? Folks, are all in favor of getting another minute? Aye. Let's get some day. Aye. I think the eyes have it. One minute, sir. But do, do. People seem to hijack the name of their religion for their own violent, malignant purposes. And be it the Crusades in Christianity, or the Mahabharata in Hinduism, or the ongoing issue of terrorism in Islam. History is testimony to the fact that at some point in time, a group of selfish, savage bigots will be forced to use their religion to hide their greed. But for every one of those bigots, there will be millions of peaceful, law-abiding citizens of every country in the world that consider that religion a source of their identity. <clears throat> so ladies and gentlemen, when this motion is put up to vote tonight, if you do happen to favor the opposition, if you do happen to vote against this motion, ask yourselves, do you really believe that I, or this lady here, or the other Muslims in this room, or in this university, the girl that sits next to you in your lecture, or even that woman who sells flowers and magazines outside the university every morning. None of us deserve to live in a diverse, 
social, multicultural, modern, liberal society, not because of our cheap character or flawed mindsets or sick personalities, but simply, simply because of our religion. Do you really think that? Thank you. Mr. Alirafa was also making his maiden speech, so he does deserve another applause. So the final speaker the, um, on the on the vote, we have Mr. Conor McMara for the opposition. Probably won't deal with it properly yet. Uh, I think it's crucial that we divorce this debate from. Uh, the knee-jerk reaction of people, which is to denounce one side as bigots or one side as extremists and all that, and try and focus instead on the clashing ideologies here. Uh, to go uh, and examine some of the propositions, first points, the um, it's an early point that was made on the definition of jihad, which was that it was just a struggle. You're half right, it's a struggle with the addendum that's a struggle against the enemies of Islam. So it's not like quitting smoking, it's more like waging war against apostasy. Uh, my main, uh, the, uh, my central point here, central note of my argument is going to be focus on what we see tonight, which is obscurativism. The, um, it's easy to, it's very easy to condemn uh, all examples of terrorism as not representative of the underlying ideology. Similarly, it's very easy to condemn Western liberalism for its historical drawbacks, but that's just not the reality. Uh, what we're seeing nowadays, as was said about modern Middle Eastern states and Middle Eastern governments, that they are either put there as a result of US foreign policy or have no connection to the underground ideology, just isn't the case. What we're seeing at the moment is, the, uh, is a spiritual ideology existing which views its aims in zero-sum means and which are irreconcilable with the system that we've established here in the West. There's no room for creative interpretation in Islam. God's view on slavery and apostasy are clear. Had he wanted them otherwise, he would have written them differently. Do I have a point? No. The choice here is whether the followers of Islam view themselves in terms of their actual day-to-day -day lives or whether they view themselves as followers of the faith. There is a difference here in terms of a jihadist or an Islamist, a political subsect of Islam is just simply not going to be reconcilable with Western liberalism. The, um, the, the, the Quran, for example, I'm going to go off the lines, actually. No use to me. The Quran, uh, the Quran isn't just a spiritual uh, guidebook. It's also a political textbook. Uh, on, that, on, that on that point? point sure. Is, isn't the Bible as well? No. The Bible does contain, Bible does contain certain laws, like canon law and all that, and I'm trying not to get into a, into a back and forth about talking about Christianity and living back and forth over spiritual texts. But the, um, my main point is that, see, for example, the Bible, you can have extremist interpretations of it, but the Quran is viewed as the literal word of God. There is no creative room here for interpretation. On that point, though. On that point. Oh, he's answering a question. So <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can be a follower of Islam, you can be a Muslim, but if you could follow the text to the letter, and take it in all of its entire encompasses, you automatically end up in a position where you physically cannot abide by certain things which Western liberalism. 
the kind of the failure of this debate has been that we haven't really addressed, and I'm kind of at a shortness of breath now to try and wrap it all into the little time I have. Uh, it, we have not addressed the ideas of blasphemy, apostasy, jihad, atheism, jizira, uh, your Islamic law, and all that. We haven't dealt with these yet. What we've done so far is to cherry pick historical and moral examples and point fingers at each other. Uh, the reality is is that the actions of terrorists are emblematic of the underlying ideology. We're committing a no true Scotland fallacy by, by saying that the actions of the Wahhabists in Saudi Arabia or ISIS or any modern day terror cell is not representative of an underlying, underlying ideology. Baghdadi, for example, is an Islamic scholar. To say that the actions of ISIS aren't, aren't an example of Islamic law being carried oh, out to the letter. Sure. So, do you think it's reasonable to say that because. Yeah. All right. <laughs> it's reasonable to say that because there is a heavily extremist subset of Islam, that it is representative of the entirety of the religion in all of its forms. Yeah, this is a really interesting point. Most followers of Islam, of course, aren't represented by ISIS. But that's not the issue here. We're trying to tackle the underlying ideology. ISIS and terror groups and your extremists, your Wahhabists, your general political Islamists are an accurate representation of that ideology. They've just carried it out further, taken on the, both the political and the religious elements. 99% of Muslims don't. They just, they're passively carrying out the religion like everybody else. And as was made clear, they can exist in a, in a multicultural and ethical society like everyone else. Problem is, is that when you take on your political elements, you take your faith as a zero-sum game, which is what a subset of Islam does, you're inherently waging a war against everyone else. Liberalism, Western liberalism, is not a neutral ground here. It's been treated as this all-encompassing, all views are equal and welcome. It's not the case. This kind of view of neutral Western liberalism is held only by the people who practice it. In reality, your view is that you want to export your faith to the rest of the world. You believe in the apocalyptic death cult views of extreme fundamentalist Islam. You're not going to coexist peacefully with your contemporaries. And the demographics and the statistics bear this out. Currently, we're seeing an exodus of Jews, for example, from the suburbs and inner cities of Paris as we're seeing an ever-increasing, ever-more extreme, parallel society form. This is part political, is it way out of time? No, it's not one minute. Okay, one minute, okay, I'll wrap it up. Overall, um, essentially the points I wanted to make uh, with my crudely drawn notes was that there are underlying elements of this ideology which are not represented in our two, but might as say, fantastic speakers here for the proposition. Uh, but they are real, and they are part of the faith, and you cannot cherry-pick your way and shave off the sides of the faith and then declare that it is compatible with Western liberalism. Taken as a whole, Islam is an inherently political faith that is separate from its contemporaries, and it is a radical <coughs> extremism which carried out to the letter does not mesh well with Western liberalism. You can make a choice between following the rule of law of society or following your faith and that, that is an issue that is, we're still dealing with. I don't have the answer to that as to where you draw that line, but it's something that we need to solve before we go further down. Right, so, so that ends the presentation, and obviously the president will speak. Thank you, uh, Dr. Thompson. So that was um, a fairly contentious debate. Um, I, would, I would like to point out that uh, I am a bit soft about giving maiden speakers an opportunity to speak beyond their allotted time. 
uh, primarily because in my maiden speech, I had a gross abuse of the rules, managed to somehow speak for 14 minutes. Uh, I feel that like an extra minute is, is well deserved because oftentimes it's very hard to gauge in your first speech just how quickly seven minutes goes by. But anyway, uh, so we shall now move to questions. So this is the point at which the speakers and the floor have been chomping at the bit to have their uh, piece heard can do so. So it, to be clear, we take questions for the proposition first. So direct your question to them. Then we take questions for the opposition. So direct your questions to them. And then we take up standing points. So that can be a question that is addressed to both don't try to sneak in any that are clearly addressed to one side. Or you can give a, a small uh, speech, a very small speech, on the motion. So, we shall begin with, uh, yes, the chief prediction. Uh, dear Mr Chair, um, I fear the proposition has missed the fundamental point of this debate by making recourse fundamentally to anecdotal examples of Islam. And there is such diversity and disparateness in all the instantiations of Islam and different practices which are so mixed up with all different cultures among, across the Muslim world, one point five million, so many people. I think we need to return to the very basis of Islam and its roots. So Islam, from its very nascent, <coughs> was designed as an attempt to project religious values onto the political plane. And that started with the Prophet Muhammad, and he tried to create an Islamic kingdom, and afterwards the Caliphs established a caliphate, which was always designed to be a theocracy. And if you if you um, look at any preachers, and if you look at the um, texts, um, the whole point is <coughs> sorry, creating a theocracy. And in fact, that is the only thing that unites all the different sects and all the different ideas of Islam. Right? You might say, oh, this sect is this, this sect is peaceful, this sect allows one to do this. But the texts that unite all of them and produce Islam say, state clearly that um, all Muslims should live under theocracy. And the problem is, not everyone in Syria, not everyone in Iran, not everyone in Saudi Arabia believes in Islam. And so this is the problem. And the whole point of Western liberalism is that it is secular and there is clear division between religion and state. Um, how can you defend and how can you say that a theocratic Islam, which is what its roots are and always have been, is compatible? So if it's really, if Islam is really applied in two sets, how is that compatible with Western liberalism and secularism? Thank you. Um, so, um, it's actually um, like a huge misinterpretation. So, um, in the beginning of Islam, um, Prophet Muhammad and his followers were a very small community of maybe about 25 to 50 people. Um, what happened was is that they faced a lot of persecution um, by, um, the, by the tribe at that time. And so the thing is, is that um, they, um, so they actually left um, Mecca, which is where it started, to Medina, to form their own sanctuary away from people who wanted to kill them and who actually tried to kill them. Um, it just naturally grew um, into a country over time. And the thing that's really important is that Saudi Arabia, as Roger said, only started in 1931, 32. Um, most of the Middle East, North Africa, 
in Asia were not actually kingdoms, they were tribes. They, they were tribes, like, like they were organized by tribal systems, and um, some of them were Muslim and some of them weren't. Um, some of these, most of these grew to be Muslim over time, but many of these still were Christian and Jewish. Um, so, yeah, um, they were tribes. The only thing that actually unites all sects of Islam is not the fact that they're political. It's the fact that they believe in one God and that Prophet Muhammad is the last messenger. That's actually the thing. The only things that Muslims are required to believe in, so we have five pillars of Islam and we have six pillars of Iman. In order to be a Muslim, all you have to do is pray, give charity, fast, um, say shahada, and go on a pilgrimage. The six things you have to believe in as a Muslim are God, the Quran, the angels, that there will be a last day, um, the prophets, and in God's divine will. Those are the only things that you have to believe in to be Muslim. That is it. And another thing. Let's battle this. Yes. Try and <laughs> and another thing too. On the Quran, only 10% of the Quran is laws. 90% of the Quran is. Um, 90% of the Quran is just about God telling stories and about um, God talking to us about His divine wisdom. So, yeah, only 10% of the Quran is laws. Thank you, Ms. Balance. Uh, for the opposition, give me a minute. No, sorry, one per side. You can answer the next question. In 10 seconds. Mr. O'Neill. Four words. Oh, yeah. Please try and keep the etiquette throughout mm -hmm. this debate. Here, here. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting that Islam was uh, said it was spread naturally and not through divine conquest as Muhammad was a military leader who marched on certain cities with an army of over 10,000 people. That's so true. the idea would be naturally spreading is interesting. I bet like the Roman Empire spreading Catholicism and um, these things aren't necessarily. But it's spread through Secondly, I think with regard to maybe I didn't make it clear enough, with regard to compatibility, the reason, as Shifa elegantly pointed out, is that it is a theocracy against our democracy. And the Quran's penultimate aim, and it does say this in it, is to spread Islam and to create an all-encompassing caliphate under our religious law. Under our religious law. We, we, we followed the Bible right up until basically the Enlightenment, and then we said, you know what, this religion isn't good for us anymore. And that's how we went secular. Look at how our society is spread to everyone in all faiths. If with religious law, that's one law. No, no other discrepancy. And so that's why it's not compatible with what we have here. Thank you. I will now take a question from the opposition. Uh, for this side. Oh. Any questions for the opposition? Uh, Miss Sonnet, back. No, Please stand. Project. Yes, I have a sort of question, some point for going the grace method. You made a comment saying about the direct link between Islam and terrorism. Uh, one of the most recent terrorist attacks in London was on from a Muslim man stabbing Muslims coming out of the mosque praying. And there's a very a uh, popular clip of an interview from a Muslim woman saying the guy clearly wasn't Muslim because it was during Muslim prayer time. If he was actually Muslim, he would have been in the mosque praying too, not outside being to stab them. What's your view on that? Please stand. Please stand. Um, 
I think the best way to describe that is by actually um, speaking about the different sects of Islam. If you look at it, you have things like the, um, the Sunni and the Shias are fighting against each other, which sort of shows you this weird thing of a theocracy of which they're even fighting each other. And um, yes, it says here, Muslims are the majority victims of Islamic extremism. So what this actually shows is that this is such a um, I'm trying to think of a word without being rude. <laughs> that wouldn't be advisable, yes. <laughs> That's a terrible situation, perhaps? What? Yeah, it's a terrible situation where you have different sets of one religion fighting against each other. So what you can end up with is, um, I think this is comparable to... The Reformation. Yes, yeah, comparable to the Reformation, in which the Lutherans in Germany fought against the very strong uh, Catholic members of the Holy Roman Empire. Bastards. And so what? And so what this shows is that it's incompatible because even within its own sex, people are fighting each other. So how can you have that in society in which we hate the idea of people fighting each other and want to have a lasting peace? Anyone from the proposition like to respond? I'm guessing you, Mr. Raja. No, no one at all. No, you don't have to respond. Okay. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm now going to enforce um, a. I'll see how this goes. First of all, two minute responses from each side. If that is uh, still too long, because I haven't been counting along long hour thus far, I will cut it down to a minute. I don't particularly like putting time restraints on intelligent and informing the bit, but the house appears to be clamouring for it, so I shall give the people what they want. This is now a point for uh, abstaining on the motion. Mr. Dobbin, you have a point of abstaining? Yeah, so it's like, it's something that I think has been missing from most of the day, which I think is absolutely central to it. So I'd like to ask both sides of the house too, in the most clear terms, the most brief terms, and without sugarcoating or explaining how the two connect to each other, what do you think Islam means for the purpose of this debate, and what do you think Western liberalism means for the purpose of this debate? As simple and as plain Ask the opposition to respond first. Okay. Uh, so Islam is said uh, to put certain through God, through God, um, through religious laws and faith. Um, Western liberalism is, as I did say at the start of my speech, it's the idea of democracy. Um, the demos, people deciding what we want to do, not God. It's the idea of religious freedom for everyone, not one single religion. It's the idea of freedom of thought and freedom of press and freedom of speech and freedom of markets. That is all Western liberalism. And I think that's the distinct difference. Thank you, Mr. O'Neill. Would anyone from the proposition like to respond? Mr. Raja. I think the three of us have already spoken about Islam and what Islam is. So all I'll say is that Islam, according to any of us, or a majority of Muslims, is just a way of life. And the thing about Western liberalism, or any kind of liberalism, 
in fact. And this is not me speaking, but rather uh, Dr. Alexander from the Union Theological College, because uh, I actually went down to him and spoke to him. And he had to say that liberal societies have sort of taken the concepts of liberalism and freedom of justice and expression from religion, but have conveniently left out all the other aspects that define those religions. And I'll leave it there. Thank you, Mr. Rajan. Are you away to do what I asked you to do? Yeah, yeah. Good man. Right, uh, I will now take a point for the proposition. Uh, I will take. Oh, Mr. Mueller looks so enthusiastic, I couldn't right. possibly say that. No. Well, thank you very much. I, I wrote something down, so I'm really happy to take it. What is clear is that interpretation and tradition are fundamental to the way any religion is practiced. This suggests, as I think the proposition has shown, that variants of Islam can be very liberal, in the sense that the opening speaker defined, at least. However, can you demonstrate that Islam, the way it is practiced by a majority of Muslims today, is compatible in the same way? Ms. Feldes, You know, people always like to say, well, you know, look at Saudi Arabia, look at Pakistan, look at all these countries that are really violent. Why don't you look at Morocco? Morocco was a very peaceful majority Muslim country. Um, Malaysia, um, Singapore has a lot of Muslims. They just had its first um, woman president, which, by the way, the U.S. has not had, which so many other. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you can, you know, because I feel like always the example of how violent Islam is in Saudi Arabia, but, you know, um, my dad and, and I'm of Algerian descent. Um, Algeria is a very peaceful country. Um, people drink, people smoke. Um, music is, is very sexual. Um, and <laughs> that's what it is. Like our music is, is really, it's really sexual, and um, people don't go to jail for us. Um, it's a very open country. Um, women aren't required to jab. Um, yeah, I mean, there are, there are Muslims throughout the Western world and the United States, such as myself. Um, we're very successful. 10% um, of all doctors in the U.S. are Muslim. Um, right now, um, in Congress, we have two Muslim representatives who are both Democratic. And one of them, Keith Ellison, who I've had the privilege to meet, is one of the most liberal members of Congress. So... Thank you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Would anybody from the opposition like to respond to that? Sure. McMara. Yeah. Um, it's a good point. It's right into the, with the core issues that we're seeing here at the moment. I think uh, Russia, the last point perfectly, which was what is Islam as a way of life. And what I've got over here is a series of examples of what about Algeria, what about the United States, and you know, a whole spectrum of the most moderate liberal Muslims, the most extremist, hardened Islamists, and check them all and put them in and see whether or not they're compatible with Western liberalism. The fact of the matter is, though, is that throughout this debate we're seeing an example of the notion of Scotsman fallacy. I have the same critique of Christianity as I do about Islam, which is your Westboro Baptist Church, for example, is representative of Christianity. Similarly, your Saudi Arabia, your terror cells, your Islamist networks are representative of Islam. To take them and to show that they cannot be irre irreconcilable with Western liberalism is enough for the opposition to prove its point. 
the uh, this is another uh, I'm going to wrap up real quick. I sort of one last only. The um, this is another really interesting thing to examine, which is extremism can take some of the boxes of Western liberalism on the surface. For example, democracy. This be your, for example, your Turkish model, uh, which is held up as this poster child for the two schools reconciling with each other. It doesn't work. Be it in Egypt, be it in Turkey, be it in Tunisia at the moment, other times elections and democracy for Islamist factions are just a means to an ultra, ultimately illiberal end. <coughs> the point still remains that for the majority of countries that have hardened Islamic uh, voting blocks and, who, uh, and Islamic uh, voting plurality in terms of the population believes in, the device they hold, are not consistent with Western liberalism. And that's just simply what it is. Thank you, Mr. McNamara. Thank you. Uh, okay, we will now take a point for the opposition. I think, especially to cover your name, um, so you frequently, and it's sort of personally the first thing to you, is a lot of, you've accused this of cherry picking, and I would point out that a lot of the time you've been referring to either historical incidents or um, like specific sects, such as Wahhabism, which is where a lot of the extremism um, comes from. And I think that there is uh, some deviation from the question that it's not a question of whether, it is, it is, of whether Wahhabism it is compatible with uh, modern liberal society, or whether you know ancient you know, caliphates were compatible with modern liberal Western liberal society, um, and, and how would you address that? I think that's fair, and um, I think everyone has to check. I think um, but again, forget the historical example. Look, literally, what's happening in the world, what's going on. Um, I think with regard to compatibility, again, it's just the idea that um, we all we have to prove is that. As a Muslim, the the one thing that's that's in uh, that's in the Quran and the scriptures is that the implementation of this full religious law throughout the world. And so, let's say it got to the stage when Muslims held the majority in uh, in the UK. And as a devout Muslim, you would have to then vote for politicians who would like to change it to religious law, completely ousting all of our civil framework. And so, at that stage, once we've actually implemented Sharia law, would you say then? that um, they're compatible, considering you've now just binned all the models. <coughs> is that compatibility? Or is that just replacing one with the other, which is the complete opposite of compatibility? Thank you, Mr. Arnett. Uh, would anyone from the proposition like to respond? Uh, for the sake of time, I will ask Mr. Hajat to respond. <laughs> Apologies, Mr. Um, to address the gentleman's point and yours, Speaking and, and then the debate there. Speaking of theocracy, first of all, what we need to understand was that the holy text of Islam was not did not just suddenly manifest at one second in a period of time. It was actually given down orally over a period of twenty-two years based on the times in which it did descend. So it does refer a lot of times to the problems that were faced by the people there. But the laws, the very ideals that the text possesses are universal and do run some time. Now, coming to establishing a Muslim world all over, uh, I, I, I really, it, it really surprises me because 
nowhere in the Quran does it actually mention that. In fact, it does give you, the Quran does give you freedom of expression and religion and does not pose any kind of restrictions on any person who does not or is not a practitioner of the faith of Islam. Thank you, Mr. Raja. Uh, so we will take one final question. Because um, there's that little thing that I'd like to do before you close up. So this is an abstaining point on the motion. Uh, and I direct it to the new fellow down there who hasn't spoken before. If you could state your name, please. Sir, my name is Clark Jensen. I'd like to thank everybody for their points. I think it's been an excellent debate. And I'd like to thank this gentleman for pointing us towards the fact of definition of emotion. And what I'm interested in is what both sides would have to say about the term compatible. I'm interested in hearing what you think that word actually means. The way I've understood it is you might ask a person that you were interested in marrying, are we compatible together? Will we work together? Will this be a good life for both of us? You might look at your Windows system and your Apple Mac and say, are these two things compatible together? Will they work together? Will they actually achieve the things that they are there for? So I'd like to ask both sides of emotion. What do you think Western liberalism is for? What is its ultimate end and goal? Why does it exist? What do you think Islam is for? What is its ultimate end and goal? Why does it exist? And therefore, will they actually work together to bring about something that they both want? And I directed to both sides of the motion because I haven't heard either of you, to be honest with you, say what those things are for, what they're to do. Well, that's good, sir. Uh Um, I'll be very gentle about this, sir. Uh, we need to draw a distinction between compatibility and the word symmetrical. Is Islam symmetrical to Western liberalism? Perhaps not. But then again, is any religion symmetrical to any other ideology in the world? Of course not. Is it compatible? Are there, is there a possibility for a follower, follower of Islam to exist peacefully, coexist in a Western modern world. And all of us here, any Muslim in this part of the world, in this hemisphere, is a living example of that ideology. Thank you, Mr. Raja. And finally, some opposition like to respond, Mr. O'Neill. Um, yes, no one on this side of the house is saying that we can't peacefully exist with Muslims. Uh, absolutely not. Um, because of Western liberalism. You, 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 can, you can live in our society and be at peace, and that's what we want. With regard to uh, your point, our ultimate aims are, again, as I said, all the things we have, freedom of speech, the, the free markets, everything with regard to gender equality, and what is basically taking place in society and the goals we're trying to get to. And that's what we're doing. And whereas the ultimate political goal of Islam is religious law. That is, and as you said, it's a, it's a way of living your life, <coughs> which I feel that we or else we would have implemented it. Which is why we took religious texts and put them in the bin whenever we started making our constitutions in the late 1800s or the early, or early 1800s. And so that, that's what we went for. We went for liberalism. We went for these things that are decided by a lacking language, and, and we went that way. Whereas Islam is... Huh? Who exactly was this? In the 1800s? Yeah, uh, the French. Uh, <laughs> 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 Thank you. And that's that's basically what we are going for. And it's, it's on the political goal is religious love, which I personally don't want. Thank
that's all conclude the questions from the floor for this evening. We are fast approaching the end of this debate, and as such, we are fast
um, address some of the issues which um, were uh, missing, uh, which I think would have been important. Um, so, for example, the idea of Islam is a theory about life, so to is liberalism. But, I, but it, so it is fair that when we speak about either, we consider what is it best about. It is not. It is disingenuous to speak about what it is worst about or the worst expression of it. So I think the the question of what's the best in Islam has to be the point of reference for understanding the issue of comp compatibility. It is not fair to choose what is the worst about it. So I think that that's the point. And in regard to um, the understanding of liberalism, I do not think we were helped very much in understanding what the proposition um, understood by liberalism, really. Uh, we were left in a place of assumption about what it is. We do not, when we say Western, for example, when, when, where do we begin to mark West? What's the demarcation between West and what is not West? When does, it, when, does it, when, when does that begin? These are important things to understand because these are some of the very issues that Islam, in fact, contains about as to whose thought are you carrying? So the very idea of, um, uh, in a sense, trying to establish um, Western liberalism on no foundation, not recognizing its basis and its reliance, not only on religion, but also on Islam, I think that that is disingenuous. It is important to appreciate, in, in a sense, the religious substrate on which Western liberalism is, is, is constructed. So when a, a capitalism and the Protestant ethic was written, it is precisely to show the, the correlation between the, the aspirations of Western liberalism and the things that already evidence themselves in, the Protestant, in, in, in what emerged as Protestantism. Uh, the final point I make in relation to this is that the, the idea of, uh, or the inability, I think, to respect and regard the diversity within Islam and the diversity within Western liberalism, I think, in a sense, we, 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 we do not benefit from that appreciation of the tension within these different, um, if you like, theories of life and how society should be constructed. And these are the things I just said to keep in mind. Briefly point out that as I failed to note at the beginning of the event, Dr. Thompson uh, was a lecturer at Trinity in Islamic Studies and is currently a minister at the Mavian Church? <laughs> no, we're reading. Ah, I blamed on this. You know, uh, so, yes, the, uh, the how shall I go to our vote, I do believe. Uh, but not far, I point out that we have a workshop tomorrow, our first workshop of the semester. Uh, at what time, Mr. Dunn? 12 o'clock. And to room two. So, it's a really informal thing run by a training officer who unfortunately isn't there. If you ever feel nervous about speaking, it's a great thing to come along to. It's a start of many. Um, there should be snacks and drinks at all the way from 12 o'clock in club room two. These workshops are not meant to merely prepare you for speaking at one of our events, but just generally to be able to publicly speak. Uh, so, it'll hopefully be a valuable experience for you all. I have a question about the workshop. Can it be asked to me afterwards? <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Oh, Miss Cambo, please. Twelve of us talking. Read the house. Um, so yes, we shall now move to a vote. So this is a vote on on speaker ability. So to be very clear, speaker ability, not necessarily what you currently believe uh, or. Uh, how you have been persuaded through the course of this debate. It is which side you believe spoke better this evening. It may seem a bit strange, but that's simply how it is done on the debating circuit. So, all those who wish to vote in favour of the motion of this House believes Islam is compatible with Western liberalism, please raise your hand and say aye. Aye. Keep them up. Okay, all those who wish to vote against the motion, please raise your hand and say nay. Keep them up. And all those uh, who think each side spoke equally well or equally terribly, or who wish to express no opinion whatsoever, please raise your hands and say it loud, say it proud, say meh! Meh! Whoa! Okay, that's good. Uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 15, 15. Mr. Secretary, could you please read back the results to me? Mr. President, 18 people voted for the proposition, 24 for the opposition, and 15 abstentions. There you go, the opposition has it! The opposition has it! Now, Mr. Sullivan, is woodworkers available? Uh, there's no, 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 pretty full. Pretty full. In that case, Mr. Con O'Neill, our social officer, shall be leading you to the uh, parlour uh, this evening. Uh, if you wish to pay your rent, get a card, etc., please stay behind and speak to me. Otherwise, the time is quarter past nine, and you're here by the meeting of the house. Adjourn! Yeah. 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 Yeah.